Warning. If you're listening with small children, please be aware that the following episode contains adult subject matter, such as stories about hooking up on BART, hooking up in the bushes at Lake Merritt, being a naked go-go boy, hooking up by the Mormon temple, and, as you're about to hear, hooking up with two wizards at a Berkeley rave. Enter at your own risk. And happy Valentine's Day. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Okay, this is early 2000s. You're planning on going to like a punk show in Oakland Warehouse. If you're trying to kind of create a vision for the listener of what that experience was like, what are the sights you see? What are the smells you smell? What are the things you hear as you're kind of walking up to this establishment and then get inside and... I just, I remember the first warehouse party I went with Janelle. It wasn't punk, it was some kind of weird Burning Man party and this is... This is 2002, and this is before I even knew what that aesthetic was. And was this the one of Quintron in what, Berkeley? Was it Quintron? Is that what was happening? Oh, the wizard. Yeah, I was oh, I was performing fellatio on these two men dressed like wizards. So I took Rogers to a show, and it was like, we went because it was Quintron and Miss Pussycat, right? So they're from New Orleans. It's like electronic music and a puppet show. But it was like in some warehouse that was more like. Um, they were burners, right? I think it was burners. It was just like a nondescript door, and you open it and you go inside. Like one of those like giant metal corrugated wall type buildings. Like, exactly like that. And so there's just the junk everywhere. It just looks like sort of like it's probably like a mechanic shop or something, or like a wood shop ordinarily, but it had all this like art in it. And then at the end of the night, we're trying to leave and I could not find Brontes. And he came out behind this pile of junk <laughs> with like these two old men who looked like twins and they like were wearing wizard hats. Like, like pointing wizard hats. Like Hogwarts, like, no. Like we're talking like velvet tunics with like silver stars on them. Like, it was, it was fun. <laughs> this is the kind of debaucherous outlandish story that Brontes Purnell has built his career on, except in his writing, he's much more graphic. Back in 2014, Brontes collected a bunch of memories like this in an illustrated book called The Cruising Diaries. Janelle Hessig did the art. She's the other voice you just heard. Janelle financed the book's printing with money she got from getting hit by a car. The first thousand copies of this <laughs> hilariously filthy collaboration sold out very fast. Since The Cruising Diaries, Brontes has released three critically acclaimed semi-autobiographical novels. His writing is unabashed, adventurous, tender, obscene, sweet, and often shockingly funny. A few years back, the New York Times gathered 32 of America's top black male writers together for a historic group photo in a very impressive looking library. Brontes is right in the center of this distinguished cohort. He's wearing a suit, a bow tie, 
enormous fake eyelashes, and a single giant hoop earring with a key dangling off it. His new book just came out this month. It's called 100 Boyfriends, and a bunch of literary magazines called it one of the most anticipated books of the year. But long before he got a prestigious book deal and all this national media attention, Brantes and Janelle were just a couple of mischievous Oakland art punks. Those were the days I wanted to hear about. Part of the fun was just the struggle, too. Like, I remember we had... Me and Brontes were at my house and on 54th Street, and we were like so broke and so hungry. And so we decided to have a potluck <laughs> where we invited all the dudes who had a crush on my roommate <laughs> like, to a potluck so they would bring food and they would bring nice food to try to impress her. We had one carrot and a pack of ramen, and then they were bringing over all this cheese and like, like awesome food and like trying to flirt with her while me and Brontes were like, oh. We made it work. A few weeks ago, I realized I'd never done a Valentine's Day episode. And yeah, I know, it's a cheesy, over-commercialized holiday, but something about the idea of celebrating love, or at least pleasure and joy, feels really appealing right now. There's been so much tragedy, loneliness, and anger lately. I just wanted to think about happier times for a bit. And that's when I remembered the cruising diaries. Because what's more joyful, more exciting than being young and moving to a new city and finding romance? <laughs> lots and lots of romance. Look, this book isn't about falling in love. It's about getting laid. Sloppy, no strings attached, carefree sex. But it's also about living through an era of the East Bay, roughly the early mid-2000s that was really special and a lot more affordable. Those were the years that I fell in love with this place. And during this long pandemic, I've realized how far away that era feels. That Oakland, the Oakland of my youth, and Brontes' youth and Janelle's youth, it's gone. But Brontes and Janelle captured some of that raw, unrepressed energy in their book. And so I wanted to talk with them about that time to relive that joy a little. First, we reminisce about coming up in a world of zines and underground music and ramshackle warehouses. Then, Brontes takes us on a tour of some notable East Bay cruising spots of yesteryear. And I know this is kind of a weird way to set up a Valentine's Day episode, but Brontes has a big tattoo of a bomb in the shape of a heart on his arm, and the fuse is lit, and it's spitting off sparks, and what a perfect way to illustrate what it's like to be young and ready for life. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue, and this song that you're about to hear is by Brontes' band. They're called The Younger Lovers. Mwah. <laughs> I just feel like Oakland is like so different than it was 15, 20 years ago. Information about that era, like the kind of underground punk and art and music scene of that time is like really hard to come by. And there's so many people now who didn't experience it and, and don't know what it was like to live back then. I think it was a really unique period. 
for a lot of factors, right? Like you can't move to Oakland and find like a warehouse to live in anymore or like an abandoned factory. And I actually, I did an article a couple years ago for the MoMA magazine about how, this is so crazy, but one of the only places where some of these like old warehouse punk spots exist online now is on Yelp reviews. People wrote Yelp reviews of punk houses and like, does that mean that it kind of came full circle? Because before it's like you couldn't just like be like tapity tap 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 on the internet and find stuff. You kind of had to search for it. So it's like if you're trying to discover new music, if you're trying to find a show, stuff like that, it's like you had to be like all Nancy Drewing it and like going out and like gathering clues. We had Maximum Rock and Roll, we had Word of Mouth, we had like a bunch of fanzines, especially in the 90s. That was part of the fun, is just like figuring it out. And we didn't, we went everywhere. Like in the 90s, we went everywhere for shows. Girl, some girl's parents would go out of town and we'd have a show at her house in Venetia. Okay, you, you were way more punk in the 90s than I was. You were way more punk. I was older. You were grown. I also was in Oakland then. Yeah, I didn't come until like, I was there in 2002. I met Janelle through zines. Zines. Sometimes they're called fanzines. Even though Janelle and Brontes and me all grew up in different parts of the country, something we all did, something that connected thousands of kids like us, was zines. Long before social media, even before blogs, if you wanted to make your voice heard, you made a zine. The very first thing I ever published, back when I was 16, was a zine that I made with a pen, a glue stick, a scotch tape, a stapler, and a copy machine that wasn't guarded very closely. My zine was pretty dumb, just interviews with local punk groups, record reviews, some observational stuff, but I was proud of it. I sold it outside of shows and traded it by mail with other kids doing the same thing. In this world of DIY media, Janelle Hessig, or Janelle Blarg, as she was known back then, was kind of famous. Her zine, Tales of Blarg, had hilarious drawings and personal stories, and it started right here in the East Bay. I like lived in the suburbs. It was just like San Pablo, Pinole, like just 10 minutes outside of Berkeley where stuff was happening, but it was a whole other world. Like once you go out there, you know what it's like. It's like, <laughs> it's like the bumper stickers change. Like people would start yelling at you to go back to Berkeley when you were at the bus stop and you're like, I'm at the bus stop. I'm like trying to get the hell out of here. And you're like a 13 year old kid. Yeah, I was probably 14 uh -huh. when I did my first fanzine. That was 1990. I was at Pinole Valley High and we were in crafts class. And so everybody else was making like bongs, secret bongs out of ceramics and stuff like that. But me and my friend Holly made a fanzine and that was Tales of Blarg number one. I'd seen like Mad Magazine. I'd seen like Absolutely Zippo and Sassy. So it was like kind of like, <laughs> it was kind of like, like a hodgepodge of all of that. It was like my way of being able to go and be a part of punk. Yeah. And so, oh, we've got some uh, music on MLK right now. An instant dance party breaks out in the middle of the interview, and but they're still driving by. Okay, let me set the scene. We were supposed to do this interview behind Brontes' house, but his backyard butts up against 980, so it was a little too noisy, all those cars. 
Instead, we crammed in amongst the drum set and amps in his garage and did the interview there. But he lives right on MLK, so it was kind of noisy there too. But come on, we're talking about zines and punk and warehouse parties, so the ambiance actually feels kind of appropriate, don't you think? All right, back to the story. Brontes grew up in a tiny town in the deep south. Discovering zines was how he eventually ended up in Oakland. My timeline with zines is a little different. I did my first zine in 96 when I was like a freshman in high school and it was called Spandex Press. I met a lot of people through there. And then it wasn't, I think I was in 12th grade or something when the flesh sheets came through and I had, that's when I got your fanzine and they were all talking about Oakland. Like Aaron Comet Bus was like the roadie. And I remember thinking that he was gay and I was like, oh my God, wow. Like there's like gay guys in this thing there. There wasn't a lot of gay punks in Alabama when you were growing up? I mean, not when the lights was on, like... <laughs> How did you pick the East Bay as the place to move to? I don't think there was another choice, because it's like my friends were in XBXRX, and they had... A person that was supposed to be in the van with them had dropped out. And they called me up and like, yo, someone dropped out. Do you want to move to California? And I remember dropping everything to get out. Like I had not even visited, but I was just like, how bad could it be? Mm-hmm. That's how I'm Vice Cooler from XPXRX. He was going to go on tour when we got there. And he was like, here, sublet my room. I had no money whatsoever and they just kind of like I was like a stowaway they snuck me in and you were what like 18 or 19 at the time I was no I was older I was 20 okay I had to be 20 so what did you think when you landed in a punk house in East Oakland for the first time what was that culture shock like I still well you know I didn't know much so I mostly just hung I remember hanging out close to the warehouse like a cat I want to say things did not get really exciting until a couple of months later, until I moved into Spam Warehouse. That's when I was with like 20 other kids my age running around and stuff. And that was like, oh shit, I'm someplace else. Like, and where was, where was Spam? It was on Chapman in 21st. It's like right over the bridge by Nico's Diner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I stayed. Yeah, I stayed there for a couple years. But you, you should tell him more about spam and what that was like. It was yeah, please. really crazy. It was like um, punk rock dorms. The fleshies lived there. This band, the fleshies, uh-huh. lived there. Steve List was the um, landlord. He was my landlord for God, double digit amount of years. Jello Biafra would call there often and be like, hey, you guys, I have some seven inches for you at Alternative Tentacles. Oh, yeah, come in and pick them up. And it was, they offered, there was this thing called 1-800-1-510-BAD-SMUT, and it's like where you would call for show listings. Right, because this is like before MySpace even, so... It, it, you, was, you right, would... it was right as MySpace was about to happen, yeah. It was yeah. maybe Friendster era. It was still Friendster, yeah. So yeah, if you wanted to know, know about shows, you had to either find a flyer, talk to someone, or call a hotline. Yeah, I, Steve List was really instrumental in, in finding out where things were happening. So for like people who don't know, Steve List was a little bit older, and he like 
looked very like, like a, a dad, like a regular dad kind of yeah. guy. His way of contributing was to make a schedule for everybody. So it was like a one sheet folded in half that he like put every single show happening in the Bay Area and he would go and pass them out for free at shows. And that's how you would figure out what was happening. And he had like funny little code for like what the show was gonna be like, what to expect. So there was pit warnings <laughs> and like stuff like that. Or like if something was really expensive. Like warning, this pit's gonna be like super crazy. Yeah, so be yeah, careful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was really cool. And like, not only did he do that, and then he turned into a landlord and was very lenient about collecting rent, I think. <laughs> yeah. I definitely, oh, my mom was ashamed to say. Like, um, I, I left on a good deal of money that I paid back, but it was, living at that place was super instrumental into me, be, me instrumental to me being an artist in the Bay Area and getting through the crux of kind of like my first major art pieces and... Are you talking about sort of just like the excitement and cross-pollination that happens when like 20 kids are all living under the same roof and you can basically jam or collaborate whenever you want just by walking down the hall? You need a hub. For sure. That warehouse space was where I started my first dance company. I started giving free classes to people out there. I demoed all my stuff. I made the soundtrack to like my dance company recordings. And like, you got started in dance at Laney College, yeah, right? Yeah, like Laney, right? When I first moved here, yeah, I went to Laney and it was a cool, it was a cool hub. There used to be dozens of warehouses like the one Bronze has lived in all over Oakland. The availability of these spaces was the result of decades of economic decline some of these buildings had sat empty for years before becoming informal incubators for a whole generation of Bay Area artists. <laughs> Imagine anyone in their 20s who doesn't have a trust fund trying to start an experimental dance company without a space like this, right? When Brontes was studying dance at Laney, one of his inspirations was Ruth Beckford who not only was a legendary pioneer of modern and Afro-Haitian dance, but Miss Beckford also helped start the Black Panthers free breakfast program back in the day. Brontes met her while he was in a band called Gravy Train. That's what we're listening to right now. to come and talk to my class at Laney. Uh -huh. And I remember one time I was in gravy train uh -huh. and like for whatever reason, I was like 22 years old and I told Ruth Beckford that I was a naked go-go boy in a band. And she just goes, well, you better expect to have a very short career. <laughs> but like, I was like, I was like, yeah, thank you, but you're so inspirational. I like kissed her on the cheek and she was really sweet about it. Um, but yeah, it was popping. 
And I look back on those years, too, and I, like, take it for granted. I was like, there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, Did you? Because you were there for a long-ass time. Well, I hear what you're saying, though, because, like, when you live with a dozen other people or 15 other people in kind of a warehouse setting, so much is coming your way that you normally wouldn't seek out. You're just, like, passively exposed to so much. And so all these influences that you wouldn't actively look for just happen upon you by the sheer dynamics of like living with that many folks, right? Yeah, I would have never tried acid if I wasn't at that place. So <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so no, for sure. And plus to this day, like, it is so hard to get me to go to a show cause so many happened in my living room for like a decade and a half. And plus I didn't really have to seek out new bands. The second I left that situation too, I was like, oh, I have to like seek out music. I have to seek out. That's a huge difference between living in Alabama where you have to drive two hours to see any punk show, right? Oh, yeah. And then segue like two years later, you open your bedroom door and like five, six, seven, eights are playing downstairs. Yeah. I'm holding a copy of this book that you two collaborated on called The Cruising Diaries. So it seems like when you got to the East Bay, you had a lot of fun exploring the romantic terrain, shall we call it. So before we kind of get into how you guys collaborated on making this book, talk about the process of living this life, because it's essentially a memoir, right? <laughs> it's auto-fiction. <laughs> no, it's like I remember Janelle was there for the start of can we say fag school? Sure. No, so Janelle was there for the start of fag school and like I feel like you had pitched this idea to me. And that was your first ago. zine, right? No. Or one of your early zines? It's one of my it was like yeah, it was one of my early zines. Or it was the it was my the, the zine I started when I got to Oakland. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, I probably pitched that idea to you in the like mid two thousand some sometime because I'd always had it in my head that I wanted to start a publishing company and publish other people's works as well. And I also like wanted to collaborate with Brontes because he's such like a great storyteller and we have the same kinds of confessional type of stories like my comics at the time were very confessional about romantic terrain and then he was doing that as well and so that's what took a huge cue from desperate times like i took a huge cue from janelle's writing she was a big influence on me you, you took a cue but then you took it to another place right <laughs> <laughs> For people who haven't read the, the book, The Cruising Diaries, it's essentially a series of anecdotes about dates with men, and uh, you get pretty raunchy in it, and it's kind of about just exploring, all meeting all different kinds of people and having sex with them. But it's also like humor, right? Oh, it's, it's so like funny, it's so funny. It's like taking back the narrative, right? So you're out there exploring all this stuff, but it's like when you view it through this Charlie Brown type lens, <laughs> it brings the pet, so like maybe you did something kind of crazy, but then through the like the retelling of it, then you own that story and you get to control how other people perceive it. I never really had a bad time because I was coming from Alabama and the thought of hooking up with another guy at all just seemed like the lottery. 
So even in like the craziest situation, it still felt like I was winning. So <laughs> it was a fun time to have that type of youthful voice. I'm glad I wrote that in the years that I wrote that, or I had the foresight to write that when I did. Well, yeah. something that was cool about you at the time was like how you like embraced everybody. And I mean that in the, the least like wink, wink way possible. <laughs> like everybody kind of got a turn to be sexy because it's like you you have you didn't have like one one strict type so there's like a dude going by in a pickup truck like maybe you know like <laughs> maybe there's something about him that was interesting and then maybe some like punk dude who's on tour it's, it kind of just like ran the gamut and i always thought that was cool the way that you made everybody feel wanted they definitely knew they could prey upon my good looks. And I was more than happy to let them, honestly. Like, so. Plus, I just, again, I was just like, oh, I can just walk down the street and a guy will want me to, like, hop in his car? Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I think that's one thing that is maybe maybe you can talk about this like how things have changed in the last 20 years or the last 15 years because now it seems like so much hookup culture is basically built around apps and like tinder and things like or grinder and things like that but what was your strategy if you wanted to go out back then like what what was the cruising scene like in in early 2000s east bay i just remember like the volume was way more there was more of a volume like when you went to lake Merritt at night there were dudes through the bushes. And like I had an older cousin who I call an uncle or whatever. He had been gay here in the eighties and but he was from the day of when like the, there was like bushes. There was uh, the main bushes had been cut down at the start of the AIDS epidemic to keep men from like cruising at the park. And so the, I'm coming way later. I'm coming like years and years after this but it still was just a bunch of people. And also like I worked at the bathhouse and I remember like- Was that in the city or was no, that- No, no, like you, again, cause of the AIDS epidemic, like they can't, you can't really have a bathhouse in San Francisco to this day. So they're all in the East Bay. And I worked at Steamworks and this was like a chain one. There was one in Puerto Rico at some point and like one in Chicago, mm -hmm. Toronto, blah, blah, blah. And plus, this is just like getting older. Like, you know, I'm chubbier now. I got gray hair. It's different who's going to like roll up on me. But this is like when you could go at 10 o'clock at night and stay till 7 in the morning. And there was like dudes roaming the hall. Like, it was crazy. But I do remember like a couple years after Grinder, and maybe also because of the economic effects of tech. The numbers both in both of those places really dwindled. The variety of who you see there wasn't so much that anymore. I'm opening up the Cruising Diaries right now, and uh, Janelle, you did these amazing illustrations, and on the inside of the cover, or one of the first pages, there's a spread of a map of the East Bay that you got here with all these cruising locations that are mentioned in the book. One thing I was curious about is the Mormon Temple. Is that a cruising spot or was that yeah, just such it a... it was for a lot of years. Really? Yeah, guys would meet, no, like, I remember this guy that I had hooked up with up in the, up the hills from Fruitvale Avenue. He was telling me about, like, how, how guys, like, cruise over near the Mormon Temple at night. Again, this was 2002, mm -hmm. so I'm sure... I'm sure no one goes all the way up there anymore because, like, <laughs> they probably just stay in a grinder near their house, but that was definitely a cruising spot. Yeah, is there any other spots on the map that sort of jump out at you guys that you think might be a, a good prompt for a story? Um, 
We got Gilman on here. Bart train. We could talk about hooking up on Bart. Oh, that that's a definitely another thing that like is almost non-existent now. Or maybe I just don't look as young and inviting as I used to, but like, the, like I remember coming between the city and the East Bay, it was almost guaranteed that you could like hook up with someone on the back of BART. And I, right about the time that the culture changed in this way here, that was almost un... Like it just didn't happen as much if those people weren't there. When you say hook up on BART, do you mean meet someone on BART and then go hook up at one of your places like, or just hook up on the BART train and then go your separate ways? Of like engage in mutual masturbation with a fellow gentleman in the back seat of the back car. <laughs> <laughs> the oh back gosh. seat of the last car. Yeah, like, totally, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so you, you started uh, first sharing these, uh, these hookup stories in your zine. And then, so how did the zine turn into the book? And it originally just started as four stories, but I kept hooking up with people. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? And just yeah. like, it was also so like, I don't know. I thought people just thought it was like so funny or whatever. Cause I mean, also like the boys I knew around my age, they were in San Francisco, all trying to be the next Castro debutante. They were looking for husbands and stuff. So there was something like, it wasn't out of the ordinary that I cruised, but it was out of the ordinary to the extent which I did so far out of my social circle and the fact that I thought to write about it. So I think that's why I became like kind of popular. And so I kept, yeah, I kept it as a staple in fact school. And I, I would just like to point out that there's, there's been memoirs about cruising before, but they weren't funny. There was one, what was that one about all the wolves I've known? Like, <laughs> There's a line in the intro to this where you say something along the lines of never let self-respect get in the way of a good time. It's a hyperbolic statement. Sure. <laughs> I certainly self-respect my good time. And it's like, you know, I, I have a master's degree. Oh, so. oh, of course. Well, I wasn't me saying that in any kind of demeaning way. I just think that, like, it captures the spirit of when you're a kid and you just want to go out and, like, have a good time every night no matter what consequences be damned it, that's kind of like the vibe of the book just no, like i mean yeah like and then, i mean and there are consequences but you know um yeah that's a, that's pretty much yeah i think i was kind of saying like go for it i mean it's hard to hear that now i'm a bit weary of mm. people um but <laughs> but yeah like at the time yeah like when you're at that age i definitely think that's the that's the mode that's the name of the game Can you describe the picture you're holding up right now? Okay, so this story is about, I was probably, I wasn't even 21 yet, because I remember I was hanging outside of, um, what's the place on Polk Street? Hemlock. Yeah, Hemlock. It was, I was hanging outside of Hemlock, and this dude, um, this dude in a Camaro from San Jose <laughs> picked me up because he wanted to have sex with me, because I was trying to get into this show at Hemlock, but I was 20 and they wouldn't let me in. Anyway, like, he was talking to me, he was like, yeah, like I have I have a interview for like manager at Sizzler tomorrow, but like we can go have some fun. And like, he was taking me to San Jose and I'd never been to San Jose. And I was like, oh no, I know a safer place we can go. Let's go to my warehouse. And I tried to hook up with him in this room. I was sharing 
I shared this windowless room that was like $150 with two other people. And I tried to bring him into the room and the other guys I was in there with was like, who is this random, like, white dude? We don't even want to call him a professional because he works at Sizzler, <laughs> potentially. But, like, <laughs> like, you have to go down in the hall. And there was, like, I had these roommates that were living downstairs in this tent. And they did, like, hella speed, right? Like, so much speed. And so, anyway, they, like, I was, like, getting, like, the, effed in the hall and they kept pretending to like um happen upon us when really they just kind of wanted to watch so so that's a drawing of your roommates crawling out of the tent to watch you having sex with a guy in a bike hallway yeah and they're on speed <laughs> <laughs> so stories like that are exactly why i wanted to make sure this episode gets out in time for valentine's day because what's more romantic than that <laughs> okay so um I'm not going to ask a lot of questions about your new book because, first of all, I know you've been doing tons of interviews about that already. Congratulations on its release. But I am wondering, your new book, 100 Boyfriends, how much of Oakland and your Oakland history is in that book? Can you give like a little overview of what, what that one's about? Is it an evolution of the Cruising Diaries or how would, you, how would you describe it? I think it would have to be, right? Like I think to not notice an arc from the Cruising Diaries all the way to 100 Boyfriends, in terms of just like stylistic voice, pacing structure, like, yeah, I, I love it because it's like, the Cruising Diaries, like the staunch like demo tapes, it's like that early proof of like, this is where this was headed, this is where this was going. And so, I had to say it like this, but my mind is so damn cloudy. I look back at it and I was like, when did I ever have the foresight to sit down and write all this stuff too, like, cause it'll feel like a blur. It's like when you asked me when it was the first time I ever went to Steamworks, it was when I applied to work there. I had never even gone there before, but I needed a job. And I just remember showing up in like these like Daisy Dukes and like, and the guy was just like, the guy was like, so you've never been here, but you want to work here? And I was like, yeah. And he was just like, well, do you have problems with your father? And I was just like, I lied. And I was like, no, me and my father are great. Like, <laughs> like yeah, like he totally hired me. And yeah, from there I was there all the time. And I know you've had a lot of different jobs. You t mentioned some of them in the book. Before we started rolling the tape, you were talking about how you worked at uh, Home of Chicken and Waffles, and like E40 and Too Short would come in all the time. Oh, yeah. What yeah. other like East Bay places have you worked that you they have? It you wasn't, know? well, it was Sparky's for a long time and like marijuana places. I worked at Gambit of places that like, you know, desperate punk boys work. Worked at the Lusty Lady, Sparky's, Home of Chicken and Waffles. Steamworks. I am. I, I am. I am a blue collar girl. <laughs> like I almost. It's funny you say that because I don't think I've ever strung together the years of service industry work I did, which actually probably prepares you to be an excellent cruiser. And you know. <laughs> so yeah, then maybe that that ooh, I, that's that'll be what my next book oh, is about. Cool. Well, plus you are on tour a lot too, because we haven't even talked about your music yet. Um, the Younger Lovers. How did that kind of come into the picture of your your evolution? When did that all start? I was working as a sex worker. And I thought it would be funny to name the band Younger Lovers because that's what I was doing for money. But now that I'm old and everyone in my band is younger, I just look like a creep. 
And I remember, like, there's a younger kid in my band, and he was, like, skateboarding with a group of his friends in the mission. And I come up to him and, like, hand him a wad of cash, and he gives me a hug, and his friends are just like, why does he know that creepy old gay guy? And so I feel like that name has totally backfired on me, and you're going to, like, just watch me get more and more decrepit, and who else am I going to get to play in a pop-punk band with me but, like, young people, but, you know... I'm not yeah. gonna go the route of uh, some of my forefathers. I actually prefer men in their 60s. <laughs> <laughs> In the late 90s and early 2000s, I think one of the reasons why the Bay Area had such a thriving underground punk scene and art scene and music scene and dance scene was because kids from all over the country who were inspired by the creativity happening here could land in Oakland and find a bedroom. You know, it'd be a crappy bedroom in a warehouse that you'd share with people and it didn't have windows and it smelled bad or whatever, but you know, you could live there for basically 100, 200, 300 bucks a month and that just doesn't exist anymore. So I think that we're going to come into a new renaissance. I think that's the thing that, if there's a perk about coronavirus at all, I think it's because it drove all the techies out. You know what I mean? And like, I've been looking for an apartment recently and I'm starting to see things that I can afford. I feel like the people who stayed, first of all, you're coming out of being like isolated for so long. So everyone's gonna bust out with fresh creativity and all this stuff, like desperate to connect with other people. I think there's gonna be like a major creative renaissance post-coronavirus if we ever get out of it. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But then also too, I think, um, I wanna say too, like the advent of social media made it made people feel like they didn't have to really be a place so people like i don't know they pick up trends from everywhere and as long as they can post on their phone it just seems like the place to be but now that now that it is affordable again i totally agree with janelle like because when i came here it was like the end of dot com i think that's why mm -hmm. i got in here because that bubble burst Oh, same think, with me. Same t same with me. That's exactly the same yeah, time like, I got I here, think, too. Yeah, like and was... I moved into an old post office with like 15 people because you could do that back then. And, and I hope, uh, Janelle, I, I admire your optimism and, and the affordability coming back. You know, I'm hopeful about that, too. But I think there was this very specific moment where there was all these abandoned or empty properties that had been warehouses, that had been factories. And in the last 20 years, a lot of those have gotten torn down. A lot of them have been taken over by, you know, marijuana industry, growing operations and stuff like that. Plus, since the ghost ship, you know, landlords, are, I think, are so much more reluctant to let people just pile into a warehouse and do whatever they want. So I'm not saying that young people won't be moving here, but I just don't think it'll ever be the same as it was during that particular era. Things ever, never look the same. Right. Like it's always gonna change. It's gonna look different, but it's gonna have that same energy and that same like creative spark. The Bay Area, like we have a lot happening. The downfall is actually when we do have things handed to us on a silver platter, it makes you lazy, right? Mm -hmm. And now that there's like a little more struggle has been introduced, I feel like we're gonna we're gonna get back to like creative roots and like making new things. It's just gonna look different. It's not gonna be like warehouses in West Oakland probably or like things like that, but it's like we used to always do like outdoor shows. 
Bring a generator to the landfill. Bring right. a generator to the mission. But there'll be like a punk show in like the old Yelp headquarters or something now. <laughs> now that all these tech companies are fleeing, you know, like, we'll, yeah. we'll take over the skyscrapers. Because that used to be funny to us. We would just pick the stupidest place to have a show. We had one in the post office in downtown Berkeley, like, because they didn't have like a counter person in the annex. And there was like a big window onto the street. So we like just brought our instruments in there and where else i love i love stories like this where else did you like throw crazy underground shows or I just mean, like weird pop-up shows time. there was anytime you walked by somewhere especially that already had power because we weren't like we didn't have money to rent a generator like we were really poor but like in the berkeley hills at calusa and i forget the other cross street there's just like a stage there's just like a stage <laughs> in a like in a traffic island with an outlet and we like passed out flyers all these people were pissed because they, <laughs> they thought it was like a real show but it was just the Tourette's on a traffic island in the middle of like nowhere <laughs> yeah or, like, I, I remember like the Albany bulb you know when yeah. there used to be parties out there yeah, yeah I'm sure that still happens yeah yeah Janelle is right creative expression is still going strong at the Albany bulb Maybe not midnight punk shows, but lots of other cool stuff. Check out albanybulb.org for the info. Brontes, Janelle, thank you so much for coming on East Bay yesterday today. The old book that you guys did together is called The Cruising Diaries. The new book is called 100 Boyfriends. It's out now. Uh, Janelle, where can people find... Diaries, that's, that's new too. That's the color expanded edition. Oh, new and improved. New and so improved. Where can color people find expanded. it? Um, the publisher is Silver Sprocket. You can buy it direct from him and or in your local bookstore. Well, this has been really fun, so thanks guys for having me. I appreciate it. Or, sure. I guess I've kind of, I'm kind of having you on the show, but you're having me in your home, so... <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having each other. No, for sure. All right. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If you want to see more of Brontes and Janelle's work, I'll be posting links on my site to books, music, art, all that good stuff. This episode would not have been possible without the support of my Patreon fans. Thank you so much to everyone who donates. If you want to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com and hit the donate link at the top of the page. And while you're there, I've also got links to my social media so you can follow my updates on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And uh, just so folks know, I would love to reach more people with the story. So if you could help me out by sharing this episode, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on all the major podcast apps, including Spotify. And if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and review. Music for this episode came from Brontes Purnell's solo album and two of his bands, The Younger Lovers and Gravy Train. That's Gravy Train spelled with four exclamation points if you're trying to find them on Google. Also, Quintron, The Fleshies, and The 5678s. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.